Good morning. So we have been lifting Jesus high this morning, amen? And um, we're going to keep doing that as we approach his word. And so I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 19. We're picking up on our, our series in Acts. And we're picking up with verse 21, so that's going to be on page 1725. Picking up at verse 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, You know, my friends, that we receive good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing and some another. And most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, don't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. 
You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed the temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. So we have been walking through the book of Acts. And one of the, the studies that I did on this passage told me that Luke thinks about writing sort of like a screen projector. Does anybody remember these things from back in the day? I, I even remember them, so it's okay. All right. So Luke will show us a snapshot, a picture, a slide of the kingdom of God on earth. And these things move a little bit slower than my slides for this morning. And you remember when somebody would give a slide presentation, there would be like a three-second delay where that person could explain what had happened or what was coming. So what we have in Acts is these various snapshots with Luke's transitional commentary in between the pictures. And so you might have noticed that it felt like we started in an odd spot with our text for this morning. But what we have here are transitional words because last week... When Mark preached, he showed us this slide picture of these Jewish Jewish sons of Sceva who tried to deliver a man from a demon using the name of Jesus, even though he had no relationship with Jesus. And if you remember, this went really poorly. And it went so poorly, in fact, that the whole region was absolutely enamored with the power of Jesus to the, deg- to the degree that they laid down their sorcery scrolls and they burned them and they put their faith in Jesus. It was a beautiful snapshot picture of the kingdom of God and the power that is found in Jesus alone. So before Luke goes on to this next picture found in our text for this morning, he gives us these transitional words in verses 21 and 22. Now Luke explains that after this time, Paul decides that it's time to leave the area of Ephesus. He plans to eventually head to Rome via Jerusalem, but he wants to head through Macedonia and the area of Achaia as well. He even sends Timothy and Erastus along before him to the area of Macedonia. Now, this isn't just a travel plan to tell you where we're headed. Luke is showing us very specifically that Paul plants churches, but Paul also waters churches. New churches and new Christians need to be discipled. And so he's been in Ephesus for two years discipling, and he wants to go back to places that he hasn't been able to nurture to the degree that he was hoping. Now, the experts say that when you start a sermon, that you should start with the trouble. People are enamored with the problem. But the picture that Luke gives us this morning actually starts in a really tremendously beautiful place. See, Paul has been preaching and discipling this church in Ephesus for two entire years. 
And in the text for last week, we heard that all the Jews and all the Greeks in the entire province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. This is amazing. Two years to preach to every Jew and every Greek in the area. So Paul's ready to move on because it's time. Because he's told the good news to everybody because he's discipled this church to a degree that they're on strong footing. For once in Paul's mission, he can move on in peace and in safety. Now these good terms in this moment of peace exist because this church is thriving. And when I was thinking about the effect of this church in the area of Ephesus, this picture came to mind. I'm hoping it works. Is it working? All right. So, like falling dominoes, as individuals in the area of Ephesus came to believe, so too did their families. And as their families came to believe, so too did their friends. And as their friends came to believe, so too did their families and their friends. And these people that came to believe, one by one, passed over and surrendered every element of their life to the Lordship of Jesus. This is what produced a strong church in Ephesus. As commentator Derek Thomas described it, there came a point when the Christians in Ephesus did not even have to say anything at all. Their absence from certain events and their refusal to enter into the customary gossip that social engagements typically engendered or required, their love of truth and of righteousness, these things cast a shadow on those who still loved the way of life that Corinthian or that Christians had turned their back on. The kingdom of God had taken profoundly deep roots in Ephesus and it was changing and it was challenging the entire cultural climate of the area. This is incredible. But it's also where the trouble begins. So in our text for this morning, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. So these would be like pictures of this goddess that people would take to their homes to worship. They would represent safety. Um, You would give them out. You would even bring them and dedicate them at the temple. He makes these and he is really tired of watching his prophet margins plummet. Fewer people are worshiping Artemis and so fewer people need his products. Demetrius is finally fed up enough that he starts to fight back. He's a leader among craftsmen and other people who are built up into this industry of Artemis, and he calls them together and starts stirring the pot. And I think it's important to notice that Demetrius isn't just being dramatic here, and that Demetrius certainly isn't the only person in this city who has been directly affected by the way. See, Ephesus was the epicenter of the goddess Artemis. Now, the name Artemis didn't mean anything to me before researching this sermon. But this is fascinating. Artemis was worshipped throughout Macedonia and throughout Asia. It's, it's a goddess that's united across many different religious systems. You can find the name of Artemis across the world. And her temple was in Ephesus. And hundreds of thousands of people worshipped her and came to Ephesus to worship her in this grand temple. And this is what's left of this temple, which is astounding on its own. But at the time, this was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. And those column pillars that you see, at one point there were 127 of them, and they stand 60 feet high. The entire city of Ephesus was built around supporting this temple and the tourism industry that surrounded it. And Artemis was said to be a goddess of fertility, but she is also, ironically, a goddess of banking, of money, and of wealth. In fact, this temple actually served as a bank where people would come and deposit their money under the supposed protection of this goddess of finance. Artemis was the world of the Ephesians. It was her, it was their livelihood, and to condemn Artemis would be like telling West Michiganders that making money off of the lakes is sinful. This is, this is everything for them. It's no wonder that Demetrius and his friends are upset, and it's no wonder that tensions are clearly really high in the city. So as Demetrius stokes this fire with his friends, he begins his speech with this issue of money, because money can be an issue for all of us. We're going to lose our money, Demetrius says, and we're going to lose our businesses if this, the way, keeps keeping people out of our temple. Now this is important, but Demetrius starts to dig a little bit deeper. This Paul, he says, keeps telling the people that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. Don't you get that he's talking about Artemis? He's saying that she is not a goddess at all, and this means that there's danger that our temple will be discredited and that even Artemis herself will be robbed of her divine majesty. This is fascinating. So first, Demetrius is admitting that Artemis is made by the the hands of human. And even if she's not, the things that we worship to worship Artemis are made by human hands. And more importantly, Artemis points out that he is concerned or Demetrius points out that he is concerned that Artemis herself is going to lose her divinity. Artemis will lose her power and she could be taken off her throne if this way keeps spreading. So Demetrius speaks in tensions in the room and the temperature starts to boil. Hearts start to race and tempers start to rise up. But it's at this point where I think we need to take a minute and zoom back from our slide. Because what we're looking at here is not just a heated squabble between town businessmen about their budgets. What we have here is an actual kingdom conflict that has to do with worship. Now we think about worship often in regard to what we just did here. Sunday morning and music, and that's true. This is beautiful worship. But worship is a much broader concept than just singing and giving vocal praise. In fact, everything that we say and do is an act of worship. Humans are made to worship, and whatever comes out of our mouth and whatever we do with our person has to do with who and what we worship. The church in Ephesus was worshiping God and God alone. Little by little, they were becoming those who seek God and God alone And as such, they'd made a massive dent in the pagan culture around them. 
But this was not the case with Demetrius and his friends and those who were still yielded to Artemis. Now Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 6:24 when he said that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now inherent in that passage is the reality that we are all worshiping something. And you can't worship God and other things. It doesn't work. It's one at a time. The commentator Derek Thomas says that the vacuum created by rejecting the true God must be filled with something else. This is the reality. If we are not worshiping God, we are worshiping something that is not of God. So because Demetrius and the crowd are worshiping something that is not God, then they are susceptible to the kingdom of darkness. And they are vulnerable to be able to be manipulated and used by the kingdom of darkness. So just before Paul is about to move on in peace, like a fist jam between a row of dominoes, the kingdom of darkness stirs up Demetrius and this crowd to put a stop to the beautiful work that God has been doing in Ephesus. The city swells with this pent-up frustration and rage surges to the theater. And this is a place of public forum. It's where everybody goes to hear the news. So Paul's not in the area, but his traveling companions are seized to stand judgment for the havoc that the way has caused in Ephesus. Now Paul always wants, (laughs) Paul's a man who likes to be in the fight. Anybody else? And he wants to be there. But it's wisely discerned by the disciples and the leaders there that Paul should stay away from the madness that erupts. People are yelling this and people are yelling that. And it's fascinating that the text says that some people don't even know why they are there. Does this sound familiar? Chaos, just sweeping people in. The Jews get swept in too and they're not immune. So they send up Alexander as a representative to say, hey, we're Jews, we're not with Paul. We're not part of this way, but the pagans don't care because the Jews are not buying shrines to Artemis either, and they're not at that temple either. And so somehow, even with the pagans, Jews are intimately linked to those who follow Jesus. So for two whole hours, these people yell and scream and argue, and the enemy is throwing an all-out toddler-style tantrum over the reality that the kingdom of God has overturned the kingdom of darkness in the city of Ephesus. But for a moment, the dominoes seem to be stopped. Now, Scripture illustrates that this is the rhythm of the Christian life. As the kingdom of God moves forward, the enemy throws a fit and tries to move backwards. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I've found myself in the middle of a riot, at least lately. But I'm not unfamiliar with confusion and with chaos. I'm familiar with anger, and I'm familiar with moments where despite my best efforts to be good and to do the right thing, something but the peace of Christ takes over, and I'm not able to do that. As I scroll through my Facebook and social media feeds, it doesn't take more than a few minutes 
for my eyes to catch something that puts a rock in my stomach. It's an article or a picture or a comment that causes the anger in me to start to rise, and then sometimes I make the mistake of opening the comments section. And there I find a mass of chaos and confusion, flying accusations and anger, and nothing seems to make any sense or get anywhere anyway. Now, the riot in Ephesus sounds a lot like our Facebooks, and it sounds a lot like the American political situation today. Everyone wants to say this, and everyone thinks we should do that, but there's so much yelling and debating and confusion and chaos that it feels impossible to stand on solid ground anywhere. For some of us, that riot in Ephesus sounds a lot like our own families or our living situations. We endure constant fighting and chaos that doesn't seem to make any sense, and it doesn't seem to have any real or reasonable solution. We can't seem to make consistently good choices or treat each other with patience and respect when things are hard. And just as was the case in Ephesus, it seems money adds fuel to these fires. Everybody gets a little tightened up when money's on the table, and especially when it's not. It doesn't take much for confusion and for chaos to take over, does it? Just as it was in Ephesus, our behavior and our reactions to these situations are direct indications of who and what we are worshiping. They're directly correlated. They display whether or not we truly believe that God is God alone and that God is on the throne. When we choose to spend our money the way we want to, or on excessive alcohol and a few too many drinks, are we worshiping God with our dollars and with our bodies? When hard situations cause us to panic and get angry and lash out, are we really worshiping the God who's on the throne? When our relationships start to unravel and we begin to manipulate and to blame and to take control in order to get our own way, are we worshiping God or are we worshiping our own comfort? When the power goes out and we don't know what to do with ourselves, what are we worshiping? Now, it's interesting that in the midst of this riot in Ephesus, we do not hear one single word out of Paul. We don't hear a word out of his companions in the theater. We don't hear a word out of any Christian in this passage. What we do hear is the voice of this city clerk. And the first sentence out of his mouth is a direct indication of what he worships. Now, the whole world knows that Ephesus is the glorious city of Artemis, he says, and we know that Artemis fell from heaven. Paul's wrong, the clerk is saying. Artemis isn't a man-made God because she fell from heaven. She's the real deal. So what are we worried about? What Paul's talking about doesn't even apply to Artemis. The city clerk worships Artemis, and yet God uses him in profound ways in the verses ahead. The clerk goes on to calm the crowd 
And he asserts that Paul and his followers are not guilty of a single crime in the city of Ephesus. And he goes on to say that unless everyone gets out of here and goes home, Rome will have no choice but to charge us all with rioting. And at that point, I can't help you, he says, because there is absolutely no reason for us to be fighting right now. Once again, God has used the ruling authorities to make a way for the preaching of the gospel to continue without legal rebuttal. And this is really what this text boils down to. The Ephesian church had upended the pagan culture of Ephesus because their worship had been undivided. Another way to think about these dominoes and how the way of God takes over our communities and our lives is to look at ripples. The Ephesian church was rippling out. They weren't perfect, don't get me wrong, but they worshipped God and God alone in their words and in their deeds to such a degree that those around them could not poke a hole in their witness. The ripples extended unhindered and covered the whole region. Notice that Demetrius doesn't accuse the Christians of being hypocrites. He accuses them of wrecking the pagan market and of throwing Artemis off her throne. And amidst these accusations, the Ephesian Christians are able to stay calm. Because they know that their God is on the throne and he reigns over all. He reigns over the chaos, he reigns over the confusion, he reigns over the city clerk. And even in chaos, the ripples of the kingdom of God are not stopped. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this kind of phenomenon when he says, You will be kept in perfect peace, all who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Isaiah is talking about precisely why the Ephesian church had the influence it did. It's precisely why Paul was wisely kept out of the assembly and why Gaius and Aristarchus and the rest of the believers were able to stay silent. They refused to bow down to fear and to anger. They refused to bow down to their own pride and their own defense, and they kept their eyes on the God who alone is God over all. God over the chaos, God over that riot, and God over Artemis, who can be pulled off her throne. Like the Ephesian Christians, many of us are on this road of becoming those who embody this kingdom of God that we see in Acts. Of being those who worship God and God alone. Now this journey has been transforming our own personal lives in beautiful ways. We hear testimony after testimony of the ways that God is changing us individually and corporately. And we are those who long to see God transform our neighborhoods and our city and our world in the same way. As Vic prayed this morning, the Lord is making all things new and he's making us new. And we want to see that new ripple out into our neighborhoods and in our communities, just as it did in Ephesus. And friends, if our witness is divided, it isn't worth much. 
What will change the realities in our own spirits and in our own homes and in our own lives and our communities is an undivided witness that keeps Jesus on his throne. When our eyes are always fixed on him and when we are always bowing down to him and to him alone. This morning, I believe the Lord would invite us to think about areas in our lives where we might not be trusting that he is on the throne and that he alone is God. Where our ripples or our dominoes are somehow experiencing a block. I want to make some space for us to ask the Lord about those idols. And these could be anything. They could be your coffee. They could be the way you spend your time. They could be power or the position that you want. Anything that comes between full devotion to the Lord. I want to make space to think about that. And I want to make space for the Lord to name those for us and for us to surrender them to the Lord. And so I want to invite the worship team to come up as I come to a close. And I'm going to start us in prayer and then we're just going to hang out with the Lord. We can ask him to show us these idols. We can, we can take some time to confess them and to lay them out. We can ask him to help us at bare minimum to be undividedly committed to him. And then when we get to the end, there's this song that we're going to sing. And it says, you are God alone. From before time began, you were on your throne. And we're going to sing that as a declaration of his lordship. And so let's go to God in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you are Lord of all. That there is no other idol that can compare to you. It can't compare to your power. It can't compare to your love. It can't compare to your goodness. Lord, I ask that you would make us those who serve you and only you. Lord, would you make us an undivided witness of your kingdom. So Lord, as we silence our hearts before you, Would you show us, would you show us where those areas of blockage are? Where those areas that we don't seem to understand that you're on the throne? Lord, would you help us to surrender unto you?